We've got an unusual thing that we're going to talk about here this morning. It's not normal uh, to probably go through this on a Sunday morning. It's actually more of a, a teaching uh, time than it is a preaching time, though there's not really a difference in the two. Uh, you can preach without... Uh, you can preach and teach. You can do both and still uh, be doing both. Uh, but the fact is, is that I wanted to do this last week, uh, and uh, I was not here because the start of the year, most of us have some resolve to attempt to read the scriptures. If we failed the year before, we're like, okay, I really need to get into this again. I need to uh, be reading the Word of God. And, and for many, there is a regular schedule that you may have, uh, whether it is uh, the items that we supply or give, uh, or whether it is uh, something that you've had throughout the years. And there are different ways to read through the Bible. Some uh, read a passage of the Old Testament, the New Testament each day. Some have uh, forms where they read a part of the Old Testament, a psalm, a proverb a day, and, and do that type of thing. Uh, there are some arrangements where you can go through the Bible in chronological order, in the sense of the way of when it was written, uh, exactly as far as that, because uh, the way it's arranged in our Bible is not in chronological order. So that is a different way uh, to be able to look at the scriptures and be able to do that. And sometimes I, I think that if we go with the same reading as schedule and the reading chart every year that we it ten, times can get into just a rote pattern okay got to get through this and then we get to this and and these type of things and so it's good for us to change the pattern of what we're doing and how we're thinking about the scripture not that it changes anything you know theologically but it just helps us to engage uh and there are times where i'll read uh, even in different versions and uh read it last year i attempted to read in the the greek the new testament and that's a task to do but it, it gets your mind engaged in ways that you don't normally but uh, what we uh, look at as far as the order of our books in our Bible is something that was really not solidified until the 1400s, the order of the books. You say, why was that? Well, think about this beforehand. Uh, most of the time when you got copies of Scripture, in fact, all the time when you got copies of Scripture, they were handwritten. And as such, uh, to get a copy of the Scripture uh, was something that you probably did not have. If you actually did have someone handwrite out copies of this, you would have a massive tome. They call it a codex is what they would call it. And, and it would be massive and only the rich or certain organizations had a full copy of the Scripture just by the nature of the cost and, and the, the ability to do this and by the fact that most of them were handwritten. But it was in the 1400s when Gutenberg eventually gets the printing press made and they start organizing so that you can have all of these passages of Scripture because most of the time what happened is that if you had a part of the Scripture, it may be a book of the Bible. And that was what you had at your disposal as an individual and the like. Uh, but when they get to the printing press, they, send, they, they come up with the order that we presently have that is the order that we are familiar with. Uh, and it's the order that we're familiar with in the Old Testament that most of us grew up memorizing this order and going through and, and arranging uh, our Bible in such a way. 
you have that chart that's in front of you, and if you don't have uh, these memorized or in your thought process, this just kind of breaks it up for you that as you read through the Old Testament, as we have it arranged in our, our Bibles today, you go through and the first five books are known as the law, or sometimes you'll hear them described as the Torah or the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch are, means five, uh, five teaching books uh, that are there. And uh, you have there Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Pretty standard uh, starting point for almost any Old Testament scripture that you look at at any time in history. But then you have what is called the history books. There's 12 of them. And it starts off in Joshua and Judges, and as you go through Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. As you read through those uh, portions of your Scripture, you'll find that there's a bunch of stories. It's relating history, what happened in events in the history of the nation of Israel, and uh, gives us an understanding of those events in multiple different ways. And so uh, they just combine together. Here are your history books uh, in your Bible for you to be able to read what's going on in the Old Testament. It's followed by five books that are categorized as wisdom. Basically, they're just talking about uh, thoughts and ways to think about the world at large, thinking about God, and uh, in some ways, they're whole books that are uh, given to the, the getting one fact across, whereas you have a book like Proverbs where it's got a whole bunch of little statements that you're trying to take in that are wisdom statements uh, that are giving you skill in living. And so you have these wisdom books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. You have what are known as the major prophets. You have five of those, and this is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And you go, why are these called the major prophets? Uh, it's not because they major on major things. It's just because they're big. And as you read through your Bible and you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you're just kind of going, oh, you know, you get to Isaiah and it's 66 chapters long and you get to Jeremiah and it's 52 and you just kind of read through this. Ezekiel's 48. Uh, they're called major because they're the larger ones, though you look at Daniel and Ezekiel, they're not uh, as big as the others, but they're kind of grouped in here. Uh, because they are in a larger category and Lamentations is connected to Jeremiah because Jeremiah wrote it. And then you have the minor prophets. And uh, as you read through these, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, these 12 individuals are grouped like this uh, together. Uh, and no matter what Bible you look at, whether it's a Bible from uh, back in Jesus' time and the Bibles today, these 12 are grouped together. They're called, in our case, the minor prophets. Sometimes they call them the latter prophets. Uh, but what they have as far as prophecies, it's just that they are smaller uh, in their message, though their message is vitally important because some of these uh, books give us uh, statements about the future that we have nowhere else in the Old Testament. Uh, and so they are profitable uh, for us, but you have what are known as the 12 minor prophets. And so by the time you get done, you have 39 books. And as you work through uh, your scripture and you read through your Bible and look through your Bible, that's the arrangement of the Old Testament. But that's not the way the Old Testament was arranged in the time of Christ. 
And you say, well, how, and how do you know this? Well, think about what we read this morning. Jesus is uh, on the way to the Emmaus, on the Emmaus Road, and he meets with two disciples. And as you read the story there, he begins to go through what is described in the book of Luke uh, as the, the Lord, in verse 27 of chapter 24, began at Moses and all of the prophets. And he expounded that it was necessary uh, that these things would happen concerning himself, that Christ ought to suffer and then enter into his glory. And then when Jesus uh, finally gets to his disciples, the 11 that are there, uh, he is making sure that A, they recognize that he is alive. That, that truly he is risen from the dead. It's not just a story that's out there, a rumor. Uh, he is truly alive. That's why he eats the honeycomb. He eats the stuff that's there to show that he's not just merely a ghost. He is uh, an individual that is fully there, body, soul, and spirit, uh, and is able to enjoy that food. But then you get to verse 44, and it says this. He said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And when we have that uh, word in the New Testament, it's referring to the Old Testament, except in one passage. It's always referring to the Old Testament. So he opens the scriptures, the Old Testament. And in verse 46, he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved. It was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in, the name, in his name among all nations, beginning of Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. These men are going to have to go out and proclaim what has happened with Jesus and connect it to the... Old Testament scriptures, because that's all they had available to them to preach from. When Jesus says the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he is saying anywhere you look in the Old Testament, you'll find statements about me that I was supposed to die and that I would rise from the dead. And the disciples hearing this kind of statement uh, or uh, this statement about uh, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, they would go, oh, he's talking about the three parts of the Old Testament. What you have on your sheet in front of you down in the bottom is the Old Testament order in Jesus's day. This is the order that the Pharisees would have had their Bible in. There's record of this, that they, they had it set up this way. The Sadducees had their Bible set up in this way. The Essenes, you go, who are that? Uh, who are they? These are the individuals who end up uh, storing all sorts of stuff by the Dead Sea. They were kind of a religious group that was kind of a, a fringe religious group in Hebrew uh, circles, uh, but they are collecting the scriptures and looking at things like this and, and the like. This was their arrangement of the Old Testament. This is what would have been taught in the synagogues to young boys as they would go through, and they would know that this was the arrangement. This is how they would refer to the Old Testament, the three sections of the Old Testament. And as you look at the way that the Old Testament for Jesus was set up, you've got the listing there. 
you have the law, five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You're kind of like, well, that makes sense. You got Genesis, it's the beginning of everything. It starts everything off. I mean, we've got our sermon series in Genesis and we just called Where It All Begins. Where It All Starts. Because everything in the rest of Scripture makes sense if you understand Genesis. It kind of does not make sense if Genesis is not the first book. But all five of those books were known as the Torah, the law, which don't take that to be a frightening statement when you hear the word law because it has the idea of teaching behind it, not necessarily a rule that's being brought down upon individuals. But these first five books would have been known as the law of Moses or what Moses wrote or this, and that would have been the first section of the Bible there. And most of what you have going on in Genesis through Deuteronomy, though you got some sections that are teaching, it's mostly stories. And then as you would have gone, you would have had what was known to the Jews as the Nevim. And you go, what is Nevim? Nevim is Hebrew for prophets. But for us, it's a little hard to think this way because the prophets start in what we would say Joshua. You're like, well, he wasn't a prophet, but it's included and he was one who told the word of god so he's kind of by the jews incorporated into being a prophet but as you go through the prophets you have 21 books that are included in this as you see joshua judges okay there's no ruth there first and second samuel first and second kings and they kind of combined all four of those and called them the regal books first, second, third, and fourth. That's how they kind of combined them. We've broken them up a little bit more. And then all of a sudden it goes to what we would say are the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then you have the 12 prophets we're familiar with. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And that was what was known as the prophets. That was the section that if any Jew during Jesus' day said, okay, the prophets, referring to the scripture, it would include all of that. Joshua, right on through uh, those minor prophets, uh, you would have had that listing. What Jesus called the Psalms, the Jews would have called the writings. And you go, why did Jesus call the Psalms here? Well, it's because the fact is the writings start off with what book? Psalms. Okay, and so the people are going, okay, that section of our scripture is what he's talking about. And in the writings, you have 13 books. You have all the wisdom books, but they're not in order like we have them. You have Psalm, Job, and Proverbs. Then you would have had uh, what are known as the small scrolls. You go, why are they known as the small scrolls? We're going to talk a little bit more about these, but the small scrolls, you look at those books, they're small books. And the Jews wrote in scrolls, and each book was a scroll, and so these would have been really small scrolls. But you have Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther. And then to end it all, you, you go back to stories again. You started off your Bible with stories, and then, or the Old Testament stories. Now at the end, you have Daniel, Ezra, Ezra Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles. The Old Testament for the Jews ended with First and Second Chronicles. 
Now you have that order that's there, and this arrangement uh, was understood by, as we said, everyone in Jesus' day. They would have taken it this way, and Jesus at times would actually preach and declare things in people's mind and understanding that they would go, oh, he's talking about the beginning of our Old Testament to the end of our Old Testament. There's a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 23 that I want us to turn and just look at because it gives us an understanding that Jesus was using this arrangement of the Old Testament. Matthew 23 is a chapter where Jesus is, is going after the Pharisees. You know, a lot of woes and oh, you hypocrites and all of that that's going on. He's frustrated with the religious leadership in Jerusalem that has led people away from following God. They've followed a system of works. And his closing statement uh, in this whole statement to these Pharisees and the, the judgment that they're deserving of, in verse number 34, he makes this statement. Wherefore, in verse 34, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. Here's this important statement. From the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. What he says is, I'm going to send preachers to you. Individuals are going to preach my word, and you're going to treat them just like you've always treated people who do what's right, who proclaim a message. Like you've done this, you have righteous Abel who was murdered, and a man by the name of Zechariah, and you go, who are we talking about there? Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Well, we have the story of this in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. You don't need to turn there. But you had a young king by the name of Joash who was protected by a man by the name of Jehoiada the priest. He was a good king while Jehoiada the priest was alive, but when he dies, Joash goes off into sin. Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, comes and starts preaching to Joash, you can't be doing these things. What you're doing is wrong. And what Joash does is take the son of the man who protected his life and commands people to have him executed in the temple of all places, executed in the temple where God's supposed to be worshipped, and they have them executed or has him executed. Now, we might say when Jesus is talking to the individuals here he's saying you've killed all the prophets from a to z we might think that because you have abel and zachariah but that's not how it works because zachariah is not the last letter in the hebrew alphabet so he wasn't saying a to z what he was saying is this is that from the book of genesis where you have abel who's murdered to the book of chronicles to the end of your old testament you have had a history of murdering off righteous people, people who are doing what's right, ignoring the messengers that you have, and murdering them. So what Jesus is doing, he's taking the last prophet that's murdered and recorded in the Old Testament and saying, you've had a history of doing this type of thing. So when Jesus preaches that way, he's just simply saying, from Genesis 
Right on to 2 Chronicles, you have shown yourself to be a people who will not follow and listen to the messengers of God. You execute them and you shed innocent blood. Now, I want us to just simply look at what the arrangement is like here when it comes to the law and and the prophets and the writings. It is important for us to have the law first. As we said, we get everything that's important. We get the beginning of the worship of God. Okay, you go, how does that work? Well, you have people who are worshiping God on their own, Abraham and all these individuals, but God finally formulates, here's how you come into my presence. And I've got a certain group of people that will be intercessors for you, priests, to be able to do this. And this is how you worship God. And you even get instructions in these first five books about the fact that the nation of Israel is going to have kings. In Deuteronomy, it tells them that they're going to have kings, and here's what your kings ought to do when you eventually have kings. And so having Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and granted, as you start off your Bible reading every year, and you get to Genesis and Exodus, you're like, okay, great, but you kind of waver as you go through Exodus because you have the, the building of the tabernacle there and some of the dimensions and that type of thing, and then you get to Leviticus, and it's the instructions on sacrifice, you're kind of like, okay, I'll, if I can get through Leviticus, I can get to Numbers and Deuteronomy, you know. But, but all of those books there are laying foundations for what the rest of the nation of Israel's history is going to be, why they do certain things, why they have the worship they have, why are their kings supposed to be doing certain things. You find it in Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so reading through those books give you foundation for the rest of the story. As you come to the prophets and you look at Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, what you get is a you follow it through Joshua, Judges, First, Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. You've got a history from about 1440 to about uh, 586. You got about a thousand years of Israel's history in order, and you can read through it and you find out, oh, it does not go well. These people who are supposed to be the people of God, by the time they're done, they're being hauled off to a foreign country, just as God said, listen, if you don't worship me, he says this in Deuteronomy, if you don't worship me, I'll make your skies as brass and the ground will not bring forth uh, things. And if that's not enough, what I'll do is I'll eventually take you to a foreign land where a language that you're not familiar with is spoken. And you get to the end of 2 Kings and that's what you're left with. So you say, why then do we have these prophets? Well, I would say this, that in the middle of your Old Testament, you have commentary. You know what the prophets are doing? Though they lived in different time periods throughout to when the history books are going on, they're they're giving commentary on why the things are happening that are going on. They're just simply explaining, this is, this is why certain things happen. Now, we sometimes think when we, we, we talk about prophets that all prophets did is they sat around and they talked about future events. Oh, that's why they're prophets, because they, they foretell things. But if you read the writing of the prophets throughout the Old Testament, they're not foretelling a lot of the time. Okay, they're forthtelling you go, what are they telling forth? Most of the time, as you read the prophets, you can go back and trace what they're preaching back to the book of Deuteronomy, 
back to the instructions of Moses. And what they're simply doing is they're preaching and going, this is why these things are happening to you because the Scripture told you it would happen. What they're doing is just simply telling forth what the Scripture actually says. There, there, there are times where they have a foretelling, but they're actually giving insight and commentary on why things aren't going the way they should. So you have the narrative story, then in the middle of your Bible, you have these prophets that are giving commentary on why this happened. Why did this all take place? How did Israel get here? And they, they give the comments, the reasons why. That brings us to the writings, which in the writings we don't have stories, we still kind of have commentary, but it's a little bit easier to understand. These writings uh, here, when you get to Psalms and Job and Proverbs, you have individual challenges. You think about how Psalm starts off, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Uh, you have a personal challenge to individuals. You want to be blessed by God. Here's what you do, and here's what you don't do. And what does the Psalms do? It gives us 150 different songs, some of them addressed to the nation itself, but some of it to individuals, and just reminding them, here's a person who's following God, what it's like, what the world is like in opposition to you, and here's how you live out your life. It's, it's really a personal challenge, not so much commentary. It's, it's more of saying, you do these things and you'll find life to be this way. Job and Proverbs, a little bit more complicated in their wisdom that they're dispensing, but you, you start off the writings that way. But then you get to that section where it has Ruth, Song of Solomon, down in the second from the bottom, Ruth, Song of Solomon's Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther. As we said, these are the small scrolls. And the Jews referred to them as the small scrolls. And they're bundled together, centered in the, the book that's in the middle is Ecclesiastes. And you work your way out. That means Song of Solomon, Lamentations are parallel to one another. And you work out from the center even further that Ruth and Esther are parallel to one another. See, with Ruth and Esther, you have stories of marriage. Think about Ruth. You have a foreign woman who goes to Israel and marries an Israelite. In Esther, you have an Israelite who's in a foreign land and marries a foreign king. Both of them are vitally important for the nation of Israel's history. Ruth is the mother of David, the great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ. She's important to the nation of Israel's history, but she is also, as you look at the book of Esther, you look at her and go, well, she's not as virtuous seemingly as Ruth is, but yet she is used by God, the marriage that she has, to save the nation of Israel. So you have these two stories kind of going, okay, you have that going on. But I'd also like to just simply stop here for a second. The reason that Ruth comes right after Proverbs, what's the last chapter in Proverbs talking about? The virtuous woman. You want an example in your Bible of a virtuous woman? Ruth chapter 3 and verse 11. Ruth is called a virtuous woman. 
So from this arrangement of the scriptures this way, you have Proverbs, virtuous woman proclaimed at Psalm, or Proverbs chapter 31. Next book is Ruth. What do you have? An example of a virtuous woman who's doing all those things that you have recorded in Proverbs chapter 31. So you've got an example right there. So you, you have this, the, 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 the parallelism of Ruth and Esther. You work your way in and you have Song of Solomon which is a book about love, which is the greatest uh, experience of mankind. This is one of the greatest joy, brings the greatest joys to humanity, is love and the like. But on the opposite side of this, you have the greatest emotion on the other side. Sorrow to its greatest extent. You have two emotional experiences. You have love, you have sorrow. And both of them are part of the human experience. That's why Ecclesiastes is in the center of all these books. You remember what Ecclesiastes has as one of its central poems? Is that it says this, that there's a time and season for everything under heaven. Time to laugh, time to sorrow. You know, these type of things. Time to, to build, time to take down, time to uh, sow, a time to rend. What it's basically saying is that human experience is this, is that we experience all of these things. And what Ecclesiastes is simply saying, how do we respond to these things? How do we live life under heaven, which is the idea of life that's under God? How do we live life through all of those experiences and do it in a way that one day, as Ecclesiastes ends with, that we're going to have to stand before God and give account? So how do we live our life now? That every time and season we've got is something given to us by the hand of God and we respond to it as if it is given to us by God. And we respond in a way that would glorify Him. And so as you go through these writings, these five little, the, 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 excuse me, the small scrolls here, they themselves kind of have a gathering point here. You know, get to Ecclesiastes and understand how to live life when it goes really well and really bad. Which then, after you get done with that, we go back to stories again. Okay, it's kind of like you have the commentary and statements and, and uh, ideas in the center. And all of a sudden we go back to stories again and you go, what's going on in Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles? Most people believe that our Hebrew arrangement as we have it is something that Ezra came up with because he was one of the last individuals uh, to have a role in the worship of Israel that we have recorded. And what you have in Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah are stories of hope. Remember, we start off, nation of Israel, they've been cut off, sent to captivity, and now you're talking in the middle sections, well, why did this happen? Now you look and see, wait a second, that's not the end. That's not the end of the story. You have Daniel who's prophesying about what's going to happen in the, the nation of Israel's history yet in the future and that a Messiah is going to come and all of these things that you have in the history of the nation of Israel. You have Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah who plays a role uh, in making sure that the walls of Jerusalem are secure and Ezra who's one who restores the worship of the nation of Israel to what it should be. It's functioning in a proper way and getting people to understand what the Word of God is. Thus organizing all the scrolls of Scripture for people to understand. And he concludes with a book, First and Second Chronicles. 
And you go, why does he do that? Now, when we read through our Bibles right now, we go first, second Kings, first and second, or excuse me, first, second Samuel, first, second Kings, and we read through it, and then you're like, oh, didn't I just read this? When you read first and second Chronicles, you're like, <laughs> and on all things, they start off with a genealogy. Come on, nine chapters worth. But with the way the Hebrews had it, it was at the end of their Bible as they had it, and you go, why? It recapped their history. Because when you start off that genealogy in First Chronicles, it starts this way. It starts with Adam. And it goes through the line of kings of Judah. Not the kings of the Israelites in the northern kingdom. No, the kings of Judah. And it follows also the priestly line. The two very important things to the nation of Israel. How to worship God. How do you get into the presence of God? It's through a priest that's functioning the way they're supposed to. Well, how does the nation of Israel be what it's supposed to be? They have a king doing what he's supposed to be doing. And you follow the nation of Israel's history, and though it does get to a point in the book of uh, Second Chronicles that the nation of Israel, or excuse me, the Judah, goes off into captivity, it ends with a command of a king, a man by the name of Cyrus, and he does what? He tells the people to go back and rebuild. He commands, you go and you do this. And you end the book of the Old Testament with a positive statement. God's expecting this to be done and rebuilt. And you have this city that's there. And the, a king will eventually rule and reign. And worship will be what it's supposed to be. It ends the Old Testament on a positive note. I mean, it, the way we end our Bible right now, as you read Malachi, it ends in the last statement is this. And smite the earth with a curse. You're like, ooh you know 400 years of silence you know it, it, it's it's not the most positive ending but it does it, when we read that i will say this you read malachi it does create a yearning for an answer there's got to be a better solution but thinking the way jesus did first and second chronicles being the last portion of, of the scripture you may not have thought this uh, out uh, in your own thinking but the book of Matthew reflects First and Second Chronicles. You have 400 years of nothing that goes on, silence, and then you have Christ comes to earth, and one of the first books that's written is the Gospel of Matthew, which is written to Jews. It's quoting Old Testament all the time. You go through it all the time. It's saying it's written, it's written, it's written, it's written, it's written. But the way that Matthew starts off, it starts with a what? A genealogy. Now, it starts with the genealogy of Abraham going to then David and the like, but it starts with the genealogy. And what does it end with? A command from a king telling people to go and build something. To go out and to build the church. Jesus using individuals to do this. But like Chronicles, it ends with the command of the king. Go out and build. Then you have Matthew and you have this command. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And so you have the command of a king ending it. So as Jews reading the gospel of Matthew, they'd go, 
Oh, it sounds kind of like Chronicles, but yet it's a little bit more positive. You know, answers are made here that we didn't have in the Old Testament. And all these Old Testament passages are here in this book. And now this king who is the resurrected Jesus Christ, the king we were looking for that was the answer, he's telling us to go. And so for us, as you look at Chronicles and you end the book there, it's a positive note, a recap of the nation of Israel's history, but with a positive tone to it that gets people looking for, okay, something that's similar to this, and you have in the story of Jesus, uh, written in the book of Matthew, starting with a genealogy, going through, talking about a king uh, most of the time, and then the end, the king says, you go. Go and do uh, what I have commanded you. And so that's the arrangement of the, 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 the Old Testament according to how Jesus thought. And I will say this, the apostles thought this way. You read through the book of Acts and you start reading the writings of the apostles and they're, they're thinking in the categories like this of the writings of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. I'll give you one small example. Turn over to Acts chapter 5. You have a really short sermon by Peter, but it's loaded with doctrine. Old Testament teaching. It's in Acts chapter 5. This is an occasion where the apostle Peter and his friends have irritated the Sanhedrin once again, and they've told them to stop preaching this name Jesus and stop talking about Jesus of Nazareth and stop bringing him up and don't talk about him anymore. And in Acts chapter 5, here's Peter's message. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And then he says this, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. You go, what is that referencing? Deuteronomy chapter 21, where it talks about the person who is hung on a tree is what? Cursed. So they're referring to what we know as the Torah. And then he says this, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. You go, where's that from? Psalm 110. Sit thou on my right hand until I make all thine enemies my footstool. Psalm 110, 1, 2. And then this, for the, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You go, where's that from? Any Jew hearing that would go, oh, he's referencing Jeremiah chapter 31. So in Acts chapter 5, as he preaches this message, uh, uh, verse 29 and through, he is just simply preaching the whole of the Old Testament. He's preaching to Sanhedrin who are familiar, familiar with his arrangement. And he just says, it's throughout that Old Testament. Those three parts, you can find this story and you have failed to obey God and listen to what he has to say. But in every portion, it talked about Jesus and what he was going to do in saving of sins you can go to romans chapter 5 or 15 excuse me and there you don't need to turn there but paul in in preaching a challenge about wanting to go out and preach the gospel to other sections of the world he quotes from all three sections it's just in their thinking the way that they had it arranged they thought this way and thought in this arrangement of the law then these prophets And then at the end, the writings that are there. Now, I want to spend just five minutes here and closing 
and say, why the emphasis on the Old Testament? Why the emphasis on the Old Testament? You know, there is an attitude when it comes to New Testament believers, you're like, you know, let's just get to the good stuff. Let's start in Matthew. You know, let, let, let's start there and just go through the Revelation. We don't need, you know, all this stuff beforehand. It's kind of confusing at times, and it, I really don't understand everything that's there. Well, that's true. Most of us have to work at this. But you say, what's the value of going through the Old Testament? Let's just uh, have a few passages in our mind. First one is this, is in John 5.39. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees this, search the Scriptures. He's referring to the Old Testament. Remember we said that word Scriptures in the New Testament is referring to Old Testament passages for the most part. Jesus says this, search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. As you read through the Old Testament, what you're going to see is things pointing to Christ. Those ceremonies, as Hebrew describes them, the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the, the, the activities of the nation of Israel were merely shadows of things to come. You're getting the picture, the shadow before Jesus shows up. You're getting an understanding of what He's like from the Old Testament. And you can find all the things that happened in Jesus' life going throughout the Old Testament. For the Apostle Paul, he made this statement. He talked about the Gospel, the good news. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he made this statement. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried. He's simply saying this. You can find out reading through the Scriptures, the Old Testament thing, that it was pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to die. You can read it. It also says this and that, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures and was seen of Cephas in the Twelve. And it lists off uh, over 500 people that saw Jesus in His resurrected body, confirming that He really rose from the dead. But it says this, that there are passages of Scripture that talk about the fact that He was going to rise from the dead. Now, this is the one I, I've had to work on in, in just this year. I'm going through and kind of marking this out in my mind. The third day realize there's no passage that directly says that Jesus would rise on the third day? Jesus said this during His ministry that He would, but not in the Old Testament Scriptures. You can't look at a passage and say, well, He's rising from the dead. Psalm 16 is a chief passage like this. Oh, He's going to rise from the dead on the third day. It doesn't say that. So you go, well, how in the world is the third day prophesied in the Old Testament? Well, go through the Old Testament and see how many times the third day comes up. You'll go through and in stories across where important events take place, it always talks about the third day, the third day, the third day. And I had this happen just this, this week and reading through the story of Joseph and him dealing with Potiphar's servant, the baker and the butler, and the prophecy they had. And he goes, listen, your, your situation's like this, but in three days, there's going to be a change. Um, and it seems like that the Old Testament, as you read through it, by the weight of it, has a real emphasis on the third day. So as you read through the Old Testament, you get that final impression of, okay, the third day is really important. 
Oh, okay, now we see the significance of what the third day is when we finally find it in Christ when He rose again the third day. But here you have Paul saying, here's the Gospel, and you can find it in the Old Testament that He was going to die and that He was going to rise again. You can find it. Look, you can find it throughout the Scripture. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1 talking about the Scripture said this, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Realize this, that that Old Testament, uh, those 39 books were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were intended by God for us to read. They're important, valuable for us. And then you have Paul challenging Timothy, and this is the passage we're probably most familiar with when it comes to Scripture uh, and uh, talking about it in the New Testament. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith that is in Jesus Christ. He simply says this, you as a young man raised in a partially Jewish home, his, his grandparent, grandmother and his mother were Jewish, his dad was a Greek, but he got training in the Old Testament Scriptures, and the Apostle Paul said, you began to understand what salvation was by the hearing of the Old Testament Scriptures before he ever heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ directly preached to him. And then the challenge is this. He says, now that you know salvation, Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So every part of the Old Testament, okay, every part of it is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's useful. And you say, for what? Well, it's, excuse me, it's profitable for doctrine, which we say teaching, for reproof. You go, what's that? We need to be reminded that we're failing. You say, why do we read those stories about the nation of Israel failing and failing over and over and over again? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, look at those people who had all the blessings of God and they still sinned. And these things are written for you as an example. You go, oh, so I could fall into sin even though I've got all sorts of blessings from God? Yeah, look at those Old Testament stories. I'll be a rebuke to you and your pride. I mean, the Scripture is given for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. You say, what does that mean? It tells us how to fix the problem, how to get right. And then ultimately this, that it's for instruction and righteousness. And that word instruction is child training. And understand this, that you don't teach a child one time. You have to teach a child over and over and over again. So you go, why do I continuously read through the Scriptures and have it brought before me, the Old Testament and the New Testament? It's to, rem to basically get some things in your head that you didn't get the first time. We've all had the experience of reading through the Scripture and you've read it 20 times, 30 times in your life maybe, and all of a sudden you read something and you're going, what? How did I miss this? You're like, well, you've read it all these times, and how could you have missed it before? Well, because just like children who miss things that have been told them directly, so it is for us at times as individuals, we don't get things. So the Word of God is, well, good for us to read over and over again for child training and righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be perfect truly furnished unto all good works the old testament and the new testament get us equipped for life every part of it 
So don't shortchange yourself when it comes to the reading of the Old Testament Scriptures. We've got a, a way here of reading it in kind of a different order, the way that the times of Jesus would have understood it. Jesus and the apostles would have had it in this arrangement. That's why we've got uh, this chart this year, just to kind of read through differently. If you have not gotten the Bible reading chart, it's back there. Uh, the Old Testament is set up like uh, the Hebrew Bible was back in Jesus' day. So you read through the New Testament is the way that we have it in our uh, canon, uh, Matthew through Revelation. But you ought to read through this and just kind of go, uh, the Old and the New Testament is profitable. It's good for me. Let's read through it and see if there's something new I understand about my Savior. I understand about my God. I understand about myself, about the world that I live in. And so let's Let's not shortchange our study of the scriptures here. And this is kind of a, you know, this different arrangement is just for us to kind of think of our Old Testament in a different light, perhaps to get some better understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been what saves us and what eventually will stand before God praising him forever for what we received in both the Old Testament and the New Testament revealed to us through the word. So I trust that you will take up the challenge to read the, the Word. I will say this. I also remind people there's nothing spiritual about reading the Bible in one year's time over two years' time or three years' time. You know, that's the other thing. And people are like, that's a lot of reading to do. I, I understand that. And for some, that is the case. Uh, there's nothing to say that if you didn't read your Bible through in the year, somehow you are lesser of a Christian it may actually be that you're doing better in the understanding of the Word than some that are reading through it at a pace that is a little faster. But I do challenge you to read the Word and challenge you by this chart to perhaps read it in a different way or you can use your own way. But to get into the Word of God, especially into the Old Testament, and read some of these things and understand and connect the dots of why those passages are there ultimately most of them directly pointing to Christ. And so trust you'll take this up. Lord, we thank you for your word. He gives us light. It's a light unto our feet and a light unto our feet to get us to where we need to be at, that we do not stumble and fall. Lord, we pray that you'd help us as we read through your word, that we would see you better. The things you did in the Old Testament, that we'll see you in a new light. As we read the New Testament, that we would delight in Jesus revealing all of those things that were hidden and mysteries in the Old Testament, now clearly revealed in Him. Uh, may we delight in that. But Lord, may we take this gift that we've received, Your Word, use it to understand You better. I mean, it's our responsibility to know You and to fellowship with you, may we take up the task of hearing your communication to us. We're thankful for your word. We thank you for the living word who came to save us. May we by faith look to both. And this we pray in your son's name. Amen.